Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to this edition of the Ministry Watch Extra episode. You know, regular readers of Ministry Watch or listeners to this podcast likely already appreciate the value of hard-hitting, truth-seeking journalism. But in this episode, I go deep on this topic with Christianity Today's news editor, Daniel Silliman. Indeed, you might even call today's episode something of an apologia for Christian journalism with one of its master craftsmen. And that master craftsman is indeed Daniel Silliman. He's been at Christianity Today since 2019, and I've grown to admire his work greatly uh, during the last four years that I've been reading him closely. He got his start, though, as a crime reporter in the Atlanta area, and in addition to his journalism experience, he holds a doctorate in American studies from the University of Heidelberg. He's the author of the 2021 book, Reading Evangelicals, How Christian Fiction Shaped a Culture and a Faith. One more quick note before we dive into this conversation. I refer a couple of times to a podcast that Daniel did with the Upwards podcast. It's an excellent interview, and I commend it to you. You can find that podcast by going to the show notes for today's episode. I've got a link included right there. Well, Daniel Silliman, welcome to the program. I've been excited about having you on because I have said to many of your colleagues at Christianity Today, including Tim Dalrymple and uh, uh, others, that I think this is kind of the golden age of Christianity Today, if if I may say it that way. I've been reading Christianity Today since I was in college, and I've got to be candid with you and tell you that I haven't always loved it, but, sure. um, <laughs> but I do now, um, and I um, and I and I think a lot of it is, um, you know, I think Tim Dalrymple is an extraordinary leader, and uh, to, and and he brought you on very soon. I think after he came on, and I think the work that you've done there has just been exemplary, and has it really elevated the news coverage and investigative reporting of Christianity Day. So congratulations on that. Thanks, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's interesting working in a place like CT. It has a it has a long history, and that means it has different eras. And uh, yeah, sometimes it's a little bit like SNL. People are like, "Oh, I love it. I loved it in the '90s." I'm like, "That's great. I'm happy for you. We're doing something, you know, continuous." It's not like we've we don't think we've radically changed, um, and yet there are different eras and different interests and and things to um, shift over the time. Um, yeah, I came on in 2019. Um, I am, I work directly for, uh, Kate Shelnut. I think she really brought a, um, strong journalistic interest to it. And I think, um, and, and I was hired as you, as you said, right after, um, Tim Dalrymple took over as a president and CEO. And I also think, um, I also think we're responding to uh to a need of the church to a need of evangelicalism i mean i i probably would have been doing a reporting at any time at any time that's that's my interest um but it does seem like there's a a particular sense right now by many people that that there's this need for for good clear factual um reporting yeah yeah well of course um since i'm 
uh, a co-laborer in um, this vineyard with you. I, I obviously agree with that, and believe it's important. And um, and I and I and I can't resist saying because I've spent so many years at World Magazine, and in fact still work with the World from time to time. That I think that uh, Christianity Today has been. Um, augmented in a positive way by some reporters that y'all stole from World Magazine over the last couple of years. So <laughs> I don't know if it was a stealing quite, but yeah. But there are definitely a number of people currently who've been trained over the years at, at World. I mean, there are people with deep histories at World and and also people went through like the World Journalism Institute, you know, early in their career and maybe yeah. aren't identified with World, but still would very much point to that as that uh that tradition and that training as pivotal. Well, I find that gratifying because I taught World Journalism Institute for a number of years, and also, obviously, there at World, I worked with people like Emily Bells and others that were that are now on your team, and just always um, thought they were great. and And it's wonderful to see their great work continuing with you. and And that d- does provide something of a pivot for me, uh, Daniel, because I want to talk about your early training and your background a little bit as well for a few minutes. I don't want to I don't want to linger on this too much uh, because you've you've been on other podcasts, the up. Words podcast, which I will link to as a part of this program, and 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 you you and the host of that program went into a great deal of detail about your background. But I, I did want to uh, highlight a couple of things that I thought were interesting. Number one is that um, you uh, developed an interest in journalism by reading Frank Peretti. I don't know that very many people have come to journalism, Christian journalism, especially via that path. And number two. Um, you're not really, uh, at least formally trained. Well, that's probably not an accurate way to say it, but you, you, your PhD is, is in American studies. It's not in journalism per se. Um, though you, though you have had some early uh, journalism training in your career. Oh, I was also a journalist before I went back to school and became, journalism was my first career. And then I went back to school and got a doctorate in, in American studies, uh, which started out as a media studies project that kind of then shifted to a religious history, evangelical history. I got it. So it is of a piece. Then I, I it, to say that these are this is a hard pivot is not accurate at all. Then would it? And it's a pivot, but not a hard pivot. Yeah, but no, my training in journalism came through, um, you know, several. Uh, universities. I, I went to a community college out in Washington State and and took my first classes in how to be a journalist and reporting practices and that kind of stuff. Journalism history there, and then and then I went to um, my my bachelor's is from Hillsdale, and they had a robust robust um, journalism program. Ran the student newspaper for several years, reported on stuff. Uh, got my first death threat for reporting while it. Hillsdale from another student. Oh, wow. Something of a rite of passage. <laughs> yeah. You got to cut your teeth. Uh, you got to learn, learn by doing. And then I, um, I interned for several years at a daily paper for several summers, I should say, um, at a daily paper in uh, Port Angeles, Washington. Um, and then after I graduated from Hillsdale, I got a job as a crime reporter at a small paper um, just south of Atlanta called the Clayton News Daily covering rapes, robberies, murders, fires. Um, I had a hundred, I reported on 100 murders in two and a half years. So that was my, that was my journalism grad school. That was my yeah. experience there. Nope. Journalism. I was really instructed. I think this changes from time to time. This, this evolves, but I was really instructed that journalism is not a 
field of study, but a discipline and a practice. And you can take classes and of course you can learn things, but go ahead and major in history or philosophy or American studies. Um, journalism is really something that you need to learn by doing it. And it's a craft. It's like being an auto mechanic. Like you don't, you can't, you can't just read the book and then be like, I'm, I can probably fix the car. Like you have to fix the car to know that you can fix the car. And I, I, that's how I was instructed. And that, that resonates pretty true with my experience. Like you have to do it. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I, in fact, I, I, um, here at the local college university in North Carolina, Charlotte, I, uh, from time to time over the years have been an adjunct there teaching the introductory news writing course there. And usually the first day of class, um, I will stand up in front of the, the group and say, um, you know, I, I can teach you everything you need to know to write a news story. I can teach you grammar. I can teach you, you know, AP style, inverted pyramid, you know, how to do an interview, so on and so forth. But what I can't teach you is curiosity. And it's sort of like the basketball equivalent of you can't teach tall. If someone is tall, you can teach them everything else. And um, I'm just wondering how that hits with you, Daniel, that that idea that that the real essential element is not training necessarily or even skills, though you've got to develop the skills at some level, but just having a curiosity about the world is really important. Yeah, I think that's right, though there are many ways that curiosity can go. You know, someone who's a an English professor who loves reading, reading novels, it's not like they're not curious, but it's still a different, has a different shape and it's, it's satisfied in a different way. For me, the, the thing that, that made journalism really different than everything else was the, the, the way that the, the way that it empowers you to ask questions, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, no, you now have, you now have the authority, you now have the mandate, you now have the, the power to just go out into the world and call people and ask questions or show up and ask questions and they will answer. And maybe, I don't know, like, it still kind of baffles me. Would people answer my questions anyway, if I just called and answered, like, are people just waiting and willing to answer anybody's questions if they just say hey i i saw you're involved in this thing and i'm i i'd love to <laughs> find out some more but it i don't know it 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 authorizes me journalism authorizes me to um a particular practice of curiosity and um and it feels like a superpower to just be told no just you can do this this is actually what you're supposed to do well, I completely agree with you on that. That deeply resonates with me, and I'm just I'm I, I'm uh, in some ways even just sort of smiling and laughing inside as I hear you say that because that is uh, uh, that is just a fantastic description. It seems to me of um, you know of of what it means to be a journalist and and how journalism is practiced, just to have this authority, this license to ask questions um, um, of you know, of the world, of individuals, of people in the world. And also, it, it also is, I think, a great service as well, because not only are you asking those questions for yourself, but you're asking those questions in order to give other people the kind of access that you have as you ask those questions uh, as well. That's something you really learn. That's something I really learned in the, in the training the, the, to, to, to keep the reader in mind and the way that the, you're really serving the reader. And I think, I think 
people who are curious and people who like writing sometimes struggle with this aspect. You know, if I'm, if I'm writing, if I interview you and then I'm writing something about you for you, then my duty and responsibility is to present you in a way that you like and that you want to be presented. And, you know, there are many forms of writing where that's the, that's the mission. And I think journalism Journalism is so focused on, I'm serving the reader. I need to tell the reader the truth. I need to read, give the reader the clearest picture that I can possibly give to the point that sometimes you're, um, I mean, this is a harsh word, but but betraying your sources, right? You're getting your sources to say stuff, um, not always, but on occasion, that's going to hurt them. That's going to, um, you know not make them happy and not right. make them look the best, but is going to be honest. And, 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 and that's, you know, when, when journalism is a, is a tense business, it's because you're serving the reader. It's because your highest responsibility is to your readers and not to your advertisers or your sources or your bosses. Yeah, exactly. Right. In fact, I, you and I are talking on Zoom, so I'll have to. Uh, I'm pointing uh, for my for our listeners here to a to a uh, a picture I have over my desk here that says it's from Joan Didion. It says people tend to forget that my presence, and she's talking about her presence as a writer, that my presence runs counter to their best interest, and it always does. The, this is one last thing to remember: writers are always selling somebody out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I think as a, I think that's a little harsh. I do too. Oh, I do it's too. It's also not wrong. <laughs> I'm not always betraying my sources, but my first responsibility is never to the person that I'm interviewing. It's always yeah. to the 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 reader, and it's always to tell the reader the truth and the full story as much as I can. Yeah, exactly right. Well, uh, Daniel, I want to dig down just a little bit into uh, the the practice of journalism, the craft of journalism, uh, as you know, as seen by you and as done by you for Christianity Today. Um, uh, from where I sit on the outside looking in, it appears to me that um, you do a lot of investigative reporting for um, Christianity Today. You did, you did some great work, for example, on the Ravi Zacharias story and many other stories, but that one in particular I can remember. Sure. Can remember. That's one of the biggest ones, yeah. And um, you, you also um, often are the guy that does some of the breaking news. I know you've got other writers, but I know probably as the news editor there, you've you you if you can't find somebody else to do it, it's still got to get done, right? Got to be you. <laughs> and then thirdly, I would say um, obituaries. Um, I, I've marveled at some of your obituaries, and I and I I'm, believe it or not, I want to kind of start there because uh, just ask some te technical questions. First of all, I really love your obituaries. Number two, it appears to me that. Um, some of them, not all of them, but some of them may have been written in advance. In other words, when I see a two, when I see a two thousand word obituary <laughs> that's published thirty minutes after I get confirmation that the guy is dead, I'm thinking to myself that maybe he had that one in the can. Yeah, absolutely. And I am wondering how, how many do you? Have, I know uh, because I've I've done a little bit of research and heard you on an, another podcast. You're a big fan of the movie Obit, which is uh, oh um, man, I love that movie. A documentary about the New York Times uh, obituary writers, and I love that movie as well. And I was astonished in that movie that um, 
They said they had, I think, 1,700 to 2,000 obituaries of prominent people in the can, if I'm remembering right. And I know at World, we would occasionally, if it was a slow news day, we would occasionally, you know, write an obit uh, for, you know, some older, prominent evangelical leader that, um, you know, just saving room for the lead, like how he died and when and where, that kind of stuff, or she. Um, but we didn't have anywhere near 1700. I can tell you that. I mean, if we had 10 or 15 or 20 in the can at any given moment, I think that was probably a, a good, how, how do you handle that? Just, I know this is kind of drilling into the weeds a little bit, but I'm just curious. You, no, that's great. We can get into the weeds. Uh, yeah. When I started at Christian today, there were maybe like two or three in the can it had gotten uh, a little, a little thin. I think there was a sort of previous editor who'd worked on that who hadn't been there in a while um yeah I, I ideally i mean man several thousand i don't know that sounds great but also like i can't even imagine what that would be like i think I, my goal ideally i'd have like 50 um i'm closer to to 20 um but one challenge is i keep prepping them and then and then those people pass away so I'm I I like I was ahead for a while and then and then kind of got behind again. Um, on the other hand, you know sometimes people find it morbid to write an obit when someone's like sick. Um, I have found that when I write an obit for somebody, they invariably get better and are fine, and it's <laughs> like was a false alarm or something. So I kind of feel. I'm not superstitious, but I kind of feel like it's a good luck thing. Like I'm helping them out there, you know, Go, you'll be fine. It's okay. Let me just put this together for you. If we have 10 to 20, it's probably not, not dissimilar to other um, small places and yeah, ready to run. I think, um, oh man, there was one, I can't remember who it was, but there was one that I had written ahead of time and he happened to pass on a day I was on the road. So I actually didn't even know it. And it was published and out there and being shared on social media before I got to my destination and like was able to check my phone, which had, which had blown up. And I was like, Oh, I'm so glad uh, that I was able to do it. But it's often it's, they're interesting because they're often shared both like as a way of mourning people who care about the person are, are sharing it. But then but then there also there's a spike of interest in this person's work and their and their faith journey and their writings and stuff and so it's a good it's a good moment and it really it really does make a difference to have something ready for a day when someone the 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 inevitable moment comes rather than like a week later or something Right, right. Well, I'm a I'm a big fan of obits myself. I'm a big I'm a big fan of that movie obit, um, as I know you are, and I'm a big fan of your obituary writing in particular. So uh, thank you for that. Um, oh, thanks. Uh, I I and and just by the way, I know you spent a good bit of time talking about obituary writing in the Upwards podcast. So I'm just going to sort of pass over that for now. Let that that's be fine. It. Yeah, put, yeah. <laughs> put a put a put a fork in in that part of our conversation because I wanted to spend a little more time talking about the investigative journalism part of what you do. And, and, um, and, you know, obviously, um, Daniel, I, I'm, I'm kind of on your team when it comes to that. I'm, a, I'm, um, I, I understand and, and believe in the importance of it, but that said, I, I, I want to just hit the pause button on, on, on my, uh, apologia and ask you to, 
Talk to Christian readers about why doing investigative journalism is so important, especially doing investigative journalism relative to institutions and leaders within the evangelical church. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think as a, as a Christian, my commitment is to the truth and not to a person. And um, so that's, that's for me, that's the, the first issue is that like, I'm, I'm as a journalist going to try and be faithful to the truth and, and testify to the truth and point people to the truth. And if that's not good for me as a human being or for as a member of an organization or a member of a team or a member of a tribe, like, well, so much the worse for the team or the organization or the tribe, right? The truth, the truth is better than that. The truth is bigger than that. The truth is more important than that. And the other stuff has to um, take a blow or burn down. Like I'm, I'm just, I think that's the, that's the choice we have to make. Um, that's the choice I have to make as someone who, who follows the, the truth. But then I also think it's, um, I think we hurt those institutions that we really care about by, by hiding stuff. I think, um, accountability doesn't come, reform doesn't come, um, correction doesn't come in silence in cover up in secrecy not that not that i've seen um i mean when i cover an abuse case it's normal it's it's um man i don't know if there are any exceptions i don't think there are any exceptions but maybe there's one but like people have already tried to fix it many many other ways before it gets to me i'm ne- i'm never the first the first stop so it really is a kind of last ditch effort to bring some kind of um you know reckoning with sin. Yeah, and it still may not work, but it's the it's the last best hope from 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 the people involved. Um another another piece of it is that I'm always thinking about is is how how reporting on it feels and 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 how it affects the the many people who've been hurt and who've been hurt in in silence um when i was reporting on the ravi zacharias um stuff a few years back you know a a prominent minister told me i just keep thinking a, a good a good man who was encouraging he didn't have information for me but he was encouraging me to keep pursuing it and he'd heard some some rumors and didn't know if they were true And he just said, I just keep thinking about the victims and how they must assume that the church is in favor of their abuse, right? That the church is, is just saying like they're the human cost of those people's lives, of those people's um, emotional and mental health of those people's souls is worth it because Ravi Zacharias has such a, a prominent ministry and he's like, I don't want that to be the witness of the church. I think that's wrong. And I think um I think the only the only way to communicate that we care about even the wounded souls and lives and 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 even the wounded bodies is to tell the truth about these things and is to condemn them. And 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 we're the only ones that condemn them, can condemn them. You can't condemn this stuff from the outside and have any effect. It has to come from 
fellow believers who say, I also share the values that you do. And yet I think this stuff is wrong. I think this stuff is uh, abhorrent. I think it needs to be exposed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Amity Schley's years, some years ago wrote a book called the forgotten man. It was um, about uh, the great depression and I won't, I won't go into great detail about what that book was about, except to say that, that her position or her, her thesis was that many of the histories of the great depression focused on the government, you know, the new deal, the, um, all of the programs that sort of brought us out of the great depression. But she noted that even in the heights of the great depression, where 25% of Americans were unemployed, that means 75% of Americans were working. And that their story was sort of forgotten in in the history of the New Deal, that it was their work and their tax money that essentially empowered and, and funded um, you know, the New Deal programs. And I, whether you agree or disagree with that thesis or not, the title of the book, The Forgotten Man, has always kind of stuck with me, and it feels to me like that's that's what you were saying, Daniel, a moment ago. Is that um, you know when you write the story about Ravi Zacharias, Ravi Zacharias is the big man. That's it's the Ravi Zacharias story. It's never the victim story, right? We ne- we never talk about, uh, or we rarely we don't. I don't think we often enough um, talk about these stories from the point of view of the victims and try to remember them and how our stories. Um, while they're tough to read and in some cases tough to report and write, they're giving a voice to the voiceless. They're 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 allowing victims and survivors to feel seen and to be heard in ways that without the work of the investigative journalist, that might not happen. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that seems right to me. And and it's it's also been interesting. Interesting. That's not strong enough of word. I'm I'm sometimes haunted by the memory of talking to some of the women who were hurt by Ravi Zacharias. And, you know, they're, they were insulated from information about other women. And so many of them thought that they were the only ones. You know, it must have just happened to me. Everyone else seems to think this man is an amazing man, a godly man, a, a biblical giant, basically. And I had multiple women tell me, I assumed that I was just such a bad person that I had done this thing to him, that my wickedness had somehow made him abuse me. Um, that's a horrific response to to his sin. And that's a response that's only possible because it's secret and because his um, reputation is kind of so exalted um so so yeah it's um it 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 is the case that hurt people and and victims of abuse have been silenced literally covered up pushed down and and also that the thing that's happening to them the thing that has happened to them is worse because of that silence it's not just like it's bad and also it's silent it's worse because it's silent Thinking about um, like recentering the story around a different person, I, I um, sometimes tell folks that I think um, maybe the prophet Balaam is the patron <laughs> saint, the the best Bible character for for a journalist to follow. Like the idea that you listen to the truth even when it's coming from an unexpected source. Like that's a core part of the practice of journalism and the prophet was a good prophet in part because 
eventually he heard the donkey talking unexpectedly and went, wait a minute, I should, I should listen to this, this, <laughs> like, this isn't what I expected, but, um, there's truth coming here and I can recognize it and I'm going to go forward with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word. In fact, I sometimes jokingly say that, that, uh, we live in an age of miracles because God does still speak from the jaw, jaw of a donkey. And to prove it, I just look in the mirror every morning, right? <laughs> With the Ravi Zacharias, you know, an interesting an interesting part of that investigation is that the, the original um, activist advocate who had information was um, this guy named Steve Bogman out in San Francisco who billed himself as the banjo atheist and 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 really was making an argument against christianity as such and attacking ravi zacharias and gathering negative information about this apologist was part of his larger project to to debunk christianity and because of that a lot of people weren't going to listen to him and when christianity today did listen to him and did do more investigation and did like confirm a bunch of stuff um and find, you know, a lot of evidence um, was then able to say, well, you know, this isn't, this isn't about Christianity in general. Um, but, but this is, this atheist is correct that this stuff is wrong. And Steve has told me he's had to rethink some of his um, beliefs that all Christians are frauds and don't care about the truth because journalists and um, victims advocates and, and honestly, many former employees of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries were so compelled by the truth that they were willing to um, speak out against their own people or sometimes, um, you know, speaking of the former employees, like at great personal cost, um, stand up for the truth and stand up for what's right. And that's a that's a witness to um, Christianity. That's a good thing. I don't think that's a, a bad thing. Yeah, no, exactly right. What you were saying about Steve, who I I had a number of dealings with too during you know while that story was going on, d- does cause me to um, want to uh, pivot slightly in our conversation, still sticking into this uh, arena of sort of investigative journalism, and ask uh, uh, you a little bit about your process, um, and, and especially you know in this moment, uh, given given what we've just talked about, how do you decide? Um, what to write about. I, I mean, I, I'm sure, um, Daniel, you're like me in this sense that you get tips every day that, you know, people sometimes people assume people outside assume that you must report on every single tip or that even that you like go out and find stuff that you just like think of a church in your head and think, I wonder if there's something going on there. And that is not how it happens. Well, no, not, it's a- not unusual to get six tips a week. Like that's yeah. not that uncommon. And the other thing that's not unusual is for people to think that just because they've been hurt or they're angry at somebody or some ministry, that therefore I should be too, and that if I'm not, you know, as angry or as frustrated or as outraged as they are, that I'm complicit with those evildoers. Um, All of which is to say that um, you do have to have, as a journalist, you do have to have a bit of a process. You have to have a filtering and and process, a sifting and winnowing process. And I want you to say a little bit about what yours is and what Christianity Today's is. How do you decide, what sort of process do you put a tipster or a tip through before you decide to actually pursue a story? 
Yeah, we have a, a sort of series of metrics where we look at the uh, tips and information, and 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 I really do consider everyone, and often have personal conversations with each person that 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 sends in a tip to me directly. I think the the biggest criteria for us is it has to be reporting the story has to be useful to the to the church at large, to, to the broader movement of evangelicalism. If I'm reporting on a pastor you've never heard of um, in a town that you've never heard of um, doing something that's like totally different than what other people have done, then that's just not, it's still an abuse. It's still a terrible thing, but it's just not serving again, the readers of um, Christianity today. So someone who's very high profile is going to, you know, someone who who who's um, embraced by many different evangelicals and many different organizations, that's going to be more interesting to me, or more um, feel more urgent. And then, and then I'm really trying to think like, is there something about the way this abuse happens, or the way that checks and balances weren't in place, or like something about the structure that. Um, that other people who haven't done anything wrong, who haven't had a problem can also learn from. So, um, you know, if there's a, a problem on the board or, or, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I can't think of any examples off the top of my head. Right. But I'm, I'm trying to think about it a little bit structurally. Like why, why didn't this get dealt with? Um, not just what is the bad thing that happened, but, 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 um, what is the, system that didn't hold it accountable. Right, right. Yeah, the Ravi Zachariah story was interesting to me in that regard because I believe it was uh, maybe as early as 2014, or um, I'm John, I'd have to look at my notes to to know for sure. They stopped releasing their Form 990s to the public. They had the ministry reclassified right. as a church. And I remember uh, at Ministry Watch, it was actually before I came to Ministry Watch, we reported on that, that they had, that they had changed that status. And um, and people were like, "So what? Who cares, right?" But but in 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 retrospect, I I think it's fair. It's a sign of something happening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the, and um, the and three- I was able to track down uh, uh, an internal investigation that happened in two thousand eight, um, if I'm remembering correctly, where where there was a a report about. Ravi maybe being in a pro it was, it was very like, I don't know what happened here, but here's what I saw. And it didn't feel right. Right. With a him and a woman in, I think Singapore. And when I looked at the emails that had, I got a hold of the emails that had gone back, back and forth. It, 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 it was clear that it very quickly turned into an investigation of the accusation instead of, is this accusation true? Or partly true, is there anything? And, you know, it just was a very, it was like, oh, this system is set up functionally to defend this person from allegations, not to make sure they're on the straight and narrow. Um, That's the kind of thing where it's like, I think um, calling attention to that can be useful to anybody in a church organization, a ministry organization, a Christian college who sometimes is going to deal with accusations and sometimes they're going to be false and sometimes they're going to be true, but to, to help those people and encourage those people to investigate thoroughly and think about what they're doing when they're investigating and not just kind of default to 
protecting their own and protecting people with power. Yeah. How is it useful? I think is the big, is the big question. There's other stuff. And then, you know, and then the second part is like, can I actually confirm this stuff? Is this actually true? Um, can I prove it's true? Can I prove it's true to the, um, to the most skeptical, most skeptical reader with the Ravi Zacharias stuff I had for a long time. I had one source, uh, one woman who, who personally experienced abuse and she needed to remain anonymous. And I agreed with that. Um, but then we decided like, okay, we need, we need at least three people to confirm every detail in the story. Like we're not going to go live with it. We're not going to push it until we can get confirmation of all the details from, from at least three different sources. Um, and so a lot of, for me, the worst part of an investigation is when you know something's true, but you can't prove something's true. And you, you spend a lot of time thinking, oh, I might just have to live with this horrible knowledge and not actually hold anybody to account and not actually bring any light, but just kind of carry it around in my heart. Um, and when you do finally get that, that last confirmation and you're like, I can not only say that this is true, I can give independent verification for, for, for all the details. That's a, it's a really liberating moment for me as an investigative reporter. Yeah, absolutely. No question about it. You know, Daniel, we've already been talking, <laughs> you know, close to 40 minutes and I've, uh, so I need to, I'd like to kind of wrap this up, but I got I do have some other questions I want to ask. So maybe we'll just call this part of the conversation, a lightning round of, uh, uh of questions to kind of uh, bring us to a closer, but um, so, some of them are, are I mean, I'm going to go from the ridiculous to the sublime here and um, uh, the tactical to the strategic. Well, one of the things that I've, um, that you said in the uh, Upwards interview that I want you to say a word or two about that, I, because it's, it's a piece of instruction that I often give to young writers, and that is to read your stories out loud. You, you said that you often read your stories out loud, sometimes two or three times, uh, before you publish them. And I, I just said, I, I hollered yes, whenever I heard you say that, because that's, that is, um, you know, again, something that I, you know, when you read your story out loud, not only do you sort of feel the flow and the propulsion of it, but you also catch stupid mistakes that sometimes you just gloss over whenever you're reading them to yourself. Can you say a little bit more about that, that practice? Uh, yeah. So two or three times I, I, when I'm deep into writing something and it's not a, a quick piece, but I'm like really giving it some, some time, I will actually read aloud as I compose, um, and then read aloud again when I'm done. So I'm reading aloud a sentence at a time or two sentences at a time as I'm, as I'm typing it. Uh, if I walk away from a piece and come back, I often have to start at the beginning and read it aloud to myself. Um, thankfully I work at home by myself and not in an office where people are uh, annoyed or my cat just ignores me. It's fine. But, but yeah, I find the rhythm of it is really important. Um, the, the repetitions or lack of repetitions. Um, but yeah, what, and, and it's, I, I, you know, I know the readers aren't reading it out loud. It's not like it's meant to be around, but it actually works better on the page if it also works orally. Yeah, no question about it. Um, okay, another quick pivot here is we've mentioned the movie Obit, um, as and and I think we would both. This whole both, podcast is just an ad for this movie that this that this documentary that's I think ten years old at this point, maybe more. But yeah, it's been around a while. It has been around a while. But uh, I'm um, but I, I'm a bit of a cinephile, and since you mentioned that that um, that movie, um, I'm going to ask you any other favorite movies about journalism. 
Oh yeah, but they're they're the ones that all journalists like. I mean, I love all the president's men. I've watched all the president's men many times. Um, I just um as a historian also just wrote a religious biography of Richard Nixon. So that that whole history is pretty fascinating to me. Uh Spotlight is the most um I can also watch Spotlight over and over again. It it really Spotlight really gets the craft of journalism. You know, the the anticipate the excitement at finding a document is never as accurately <laughs> depicted as it is in Spotlight or the awkwardness of talking to a source who's not a trained media professional. That's a fantastic movie. And then I I know there are many mixed opinions about The Post. Um I feel like some people love it, some people love the politics of it, other people are are more feels cheesy at moments to them but i would say the um you know the argument with the lawyers is is something that happens a lot in journalism i've yeah, been yeah. threatened with lawsuits a number of times and and that's a part you normally don't see in a journalism movie and the bravery of the leaders who often aren't journalists in making taking the risk of telling the truth and 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 the possible costs of that like that's a real critical part of the life of a journalist and the practice of journalism that that movie captures better than any I've ever seen. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I love the post. It's, I, it's, it doesn't rise to the level of spotlight for me, but, um, but I love that movie. In fact, I just, uh, but just the scene where they're all like spread out all the papers on the floor. And then you go into the other room and the lawyer's going, I don't think you can do any of this. Like that's that to me, that's just that it's a, elevated moment in yeah. journalism history journalism yeah, yeah. film history no i completely agree uh well a couple what about shattered glass do you know that movie yeah i've watched it uh when it came out or when it came out on dvd i haven't i didn't love it that much it was okay yeah. the the other journalism movie that i've watched again somewhat recently and was like kind of shocked at how good it was is uh oddly enough citizen kane I'd kind of forgot that it was a journalism movie. I just thought of it as like a great movie. It's yeah. actually a pretty good journalism movie too. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Yeah, it, uh, no doubt it's a great movie. A lot of people say it's the greatest movie ever made. Uh, but but I but you're right. People do forget that it is a journalism movie. I mean, you know, I did um, anyway. Maybe everyone yeah. else remembered, but uh, that I had I had lost that fact along the way. Yeah. No, exactly right. Well, okay. I, I I hope you'll forgive that indulgence because I'm like I say I'm a bit of a cinephile and I always just like to kind of you know go in that direction. And and I'm going to ask another question that I don't mean to put you on the spot because neither you nor I are necessarily, you know, experts in the, um, you know, either the history or the future of journalism um, necessarily in, the, in, in that it's not necessarily an academic pursuit, but th though for you, it probably maybe at one time in your life was. I do uh, love journalism history and it is a, it is not my, my main focus as a historian, but it is a, a sub-discipline I'm pretty, pretty fascinated by. Absolutely. And, and I want to take, I want to tap into that since I've got you and just say, what, um, what what do you think of the, in your view? What's the future of journalism? I mean, I know a lot of people that come out of the daily newspaper business think that you know journalism is in free fall, it's in disarray. But and they 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 primarily mean that daily journalism, daily print journalism, is in free fall and in disarray. And uh, from where I sit, as someone who only briefly worked in daily print journalism years ago, have spent most of my life in either magazines or digital. Um, I, I have a bit of a different perspective and um, I'm just wondering what your perspective is. Hmm. 
I mean, daily journalism, newspapers, I guess, in particular, TV's daily journalism, too, and, and magazines online are definitely daily journalism. But but newspapers are definitely in a tough spot. But I I guess I'm pretty encouraged. It seems to me that there's been a, a, a resurgence of general from the general population that they need facts, right? That they need not just opinion, not just people's uh, uh, hottest takes, but they want some like basic information and they want factual, uh, factual reporting. Um, and, and I think, you know, we've always needed that, but with um, politics, the last decade of politics with COVID with um, sort of a whole host of things, I think there's been a, um a good reminder oh no no we need we need some we need some reporters we need some people to tell us stuff that's going on i think that's a you know when we do surveys for what people like about ct when they subscribe to ct like the journalism is always high it's always a it's always a priority um and i see that in other places as well so that's pretty encouraging i also feel like um you know the 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 crisis that happens in the late nineties and the early two thousands. And even, even somewhat like recently with people getting fired at Gannett and all those types of things is about the model of how stuff gets paid. It's not about the social usefulness and it's not about the, um, the reader sense of value in what we do. And so like the model was always a little funky and I, I was never like, it's this model or nothing. It's like, if this model works, that's great. Let's do it. But if we need a different model, like let's figure it out and figuring it out can be a challenge. I mean, I think um, I'm interested in all the various nonprofit news outlets that are happening. I think there's a reason to maybe detach um, journalism from sort of uh, stock markets and, and uh, various kind of wall street enterprises. I think the family newspaper model still actually works pretty well, depending on the, depending on the market. And um, yeah. And I think religion journalism has seen a, a pretty good couple of years at a lot of different, a lot of different outlets and even some newspapers and wire services and magazines. And so I, I, um, I think we're, I think we're okay. I think uh, it's been a hard few years and it's taken its toll, but um, there will be uh, new models and new versions of, of fact-based reporting going forward. The the challenge of that, of course, is like, it's hard to know if you're, if you're a young person, like what to do for your career, you know, like I was just talking to a person the other day who was like, should I, should I go work for a podcast and learn audio stuff? Like, is that the future of journalism? And I should be also an audio engineer or should I, you know, learn web development and coding? And it's like, well, it's hard to, it's hard to know um, what, what to do as an individual who wants a career in the thing, but the thing itself, I think is going to be okay one way or another. Right. Yeah, no, that's a good word. And I appreciate that very much. Well, Daniel Silliman, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm really grateful. I'm, I've been nourished by your work at CT and nourished by this conversation. And I, I'm just grateful for it. Thank you so much. 
Well, I've long been a fan of your work and it's great to get to talk to you. And I'm, you know, glad that we're starting our 27 part series where we get into all the details of the craft and blow by blow of the journalism movies. And uh, I'm sure people will love that. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do that. All right. Very good. That brings to a close my conversation with Daniel Silliman, the news editor at Christianity Today. I'd like to thank Rich Rosell and Jeff McIntosh for producing today's program. We get technical, database, and editorial support from Casey Suddeth, Christina Darnell, and Stephen DeBerry. I'm your host, Warren Smith, and until next time, may God bless you.